Oh, hello. Before we get started, I just thought you might like to know that my book, No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear, is coming out in paperback. It will be available anywhere books are sold beginning in October. So, yeah. Thanks for all your support for that. If you haven't read it, now it is a lighter, it's a less hardcover. Okay, thanks for letting me celebrate that. Well, now on to the task for today. I used to imagine that life was a series of choices, that life was something you picked. It was a kind of checklist somehow that adds up the experience of meaning. Now, uh, I might not have said that to you across a dinner table, but if you looked at my life or my bucket list, you might have noticed. Married my high school sweetheart, check. Had that baby after a lot of uncertainty, check. Finished my dissertation, check. Got my dream job, check. Diagnosed with stage four cancer. Oh yeah, wait, that wasn't on the list. I'm Kate Bowler and this is Everything Happens. A community of people who really understand that lives don't always turn out like you planned. It's a strange form of, I don't know, arrogance maybe? to imagine that we can choose our lives. Or maybe it's just being influenced by so much American television as a teenager. My understanding of American high school came straight out of the Saturday morning programming called Saved by the Bell. But I did hope that all these choices would add up to something. And I think that's often how we imagine it. The job that should bring you purpose. The family you'll work hard to keep together the marriage you fight for, the friends you've managed to keep up with, the success of your kids or grandkids, how comfortable your bank account is, the stamps in your passport, the hours you spend volunteering, the way you gutted it out starting that business or caring for your aging parents. Or maybe it's how well-known you are, which maybe is nowadays measured by a TikTok follower account or some exciting abomination. Life really feels like it should add up, doesn't it? Until it doesn't. Until we experience a gradual change or maybe an abrupt one. Bodies that stop working like they did before, our failing memory, loved ones who move away, grief we can't fully get over. Before we know it, Life isn't the one that we recognize, but it's the one we have. Today's guest studies high achievers and how they might not feel as fulfilled later in life as they might have hoped. So maybe you're a super achiever, or maybe you never got the chance. But my guest nudges those who will eventually experience this kind of decline, which is to say, all of us, by reminding us that there can still be good here. Beauty, meaning, but maybe best of all, love. Arthur Brooks is a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Harvard Business School, where he teaches courses on leadership and happiness. He is also a regular columnist at The Atlantic, where he writes the popular How to Build a Life column. He is the author of a dozen books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, From Strength to Strength, 
finding success, happiness, and deep purpose in the second half of life. And I am so excited to be talking about that with him today. Arthur, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Kate. I've been looking forward to talking to you too. When people feel like they're having a kind of trajectory of success, maybe they've they're hard workers, they've sacrificed, and maybe there's a whole lot of luck. But when those people experience a change, either gradually or dramatically, that can be a really difficult thing to kind of acclimate your new sense of life around. Why are transitions like that so difficult to just kind of wrap our arms around? Well, people don't like change. It's the weirdest thing. Life is all about change. Why is it that the state of nature in our lives has changed, but we don't like it? And the answer is because we have an, uh, we have a negativity bias about any change in our life. And that, that's perfect evolution. I mean, if you didn't have a bias toward being afraid or sad or angry about change, you'd get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, um, you know, in the Pleistocene. You wouldn't have passed on your genes. You need to be, you hear a, 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 a twig snap behind you. Your first reaction should be, that's bad. I got to run. Right now, the truth is that change, however, in retrospect, tends to be pretty positive. This is a thing that we call in my, I'm a social scientist, we call this fading affect bias. And the reason is because all the unpleasantness of change, that tends to fade into the background, but the things that you learn and the ways that you grow, you get those benefits later, and so therefore you remember the change as being more positive than it was. So here's the deal. You don't like it, but once you can actually wrap your mind around this, once you can actually become, become metacognitive about this, you can say, you know, this is happening. I don't like it, but I know the data show that probably in the future, if I don't resist it too much, I'm going to get a lot out of this and look back on this a lot more fondly than I'm seeing it right now. So let's get a head start on actually not being so bummed out about it in the, in, in the present. But, you know, this is a really important to keep in mind that, that wishing for something is not enough. you got to do the work, and you have to do the work by understanding yourself. And there's a lot, lot, lot that we can all do. And your question about transitions is a perfect example of that. I think one of the barriers, at least for me, around accepting some of the benefits of hindsight has been American culture's um, exhausting reframing work that is sort of everybody's, um, mom's bathroom art, uh -huh. or, uh, there's a lot of like, just look on the bright side, or you should be thankful you had that much, or the area of philosophical and religious expertise I have is in the everything happens for a reason yeah. sledgehammer that right. people receive, like the burden of wanting to even start to get traction around my own circumstance when I feel how weary the rush to, I guess, because <laughs> I won't say it's wisdom. I just feel like people want to push us so quickly into positivity, maybe before we can even get at the wisdom that you're describing. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, though, one of the things that I, you know, I see a bumper sticker that says, choose happiness. I want to, I want to slam my car into that car. You know, and, and part of the reason is because I'm a scientist. You know, it's not I'm not a, I'm not a self improvement guy. I actually study the science, the neuroscience, and social science of happiness. You can't decide to be happy. You can decide to actually have good hygiene. You can decide to make better decisions. You can decide to understand yourself. So what I want ultimately is is not to you know rush into some sort of positivity to reframe it in an artificial way. I want to be fully alive. You know, that's what I want. And what I, what I don't want to do 
is anesthetize myself against the experiences that I'm having because I won't get the fading affect bias. I'm not a naturally very happy person. Happiness is a really hard thing for me. The reason I write about happiness is because I don't have it. And, <laughs> and, and because I want it and I want more of it. Look, I mean, I'm not afraid of unhappiness. You know, yeah. unhappiness is part of life and I'm not afraid. I'm not even against unhappiness, but I do want to do you the most that the I right can. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> well, I feel so at home. <laughs>I think I always have this feeling though, like I wanting to be awake to the world makes me sort of more susceptible to a different kind of, um, like lie, I suppose by, so if I, if I want to be awake to all the possibilities of the world, sometimes I can fall into what I think of as kind of like a hyper agency, like I want to get back the feeling of control then that helps me navigate the world around me and make it predictable again. But that, and you write about this uh, so clearly. I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the downsides to this kind of hyperagency where people want to take really seriously their own happiness, but they then resort to things that they can control again, like goals, ambition, success. Uh, like you're talking to somebody who had like a really elaborate sticker chart to celebrate uh, word counts that I finished for the day. Every day I might still have. I have many sticker charts, but it's a feeling, right? Of like the feeling of accomplishment that can be so satisfying, but there's a downside, right? To that ambition. And it isn't just failure. Sometimes you can sort of like lose by continuing to win, Right. It's something you call the striver's curse. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. The world tells us, and by the way, the limbic system of our brain tells us, Mother Nature who lies, tells us that if we're successful in worldly terms, we'll become happy. That if you get to a certain level of power, of pleasure, of fame, of money, that you're going to find this happiness. And it's just not true. You'll create a lot of value around you, or you can create a lot of misery around you too with these great worldly rewards. But the truth is that is, I mean, your grandmother told you that's not the secret of happiness. And I've got the data that your grandmother was right. But the world and your the limbic system of your brain and the marketing colossus around us tells us that that's the way we're gonna get it. And, and you know, I deal all the time with, you know, wealthy people, with successful people, and they're, they're just, they have bad marriages and they're, they're getting to the point in their lives where they realize that they don't have any real friends and they don't know what they're going to do as they get older and they see themselves fading in relevance and they're in a huge panic. So you find that people who are identified before 20 as high achievers are the people who are most likely after 80 to say that they're disappointed with their lives. That is a empirical regularity. That's number one. Second is that the strivers who have a ton of early success later they know when the party's over and the party's got to end sooner or later. Look, if you never do anything with your life, you won't know when it's over. <laughs> but if you do a lot, you're going to know when you're on the downslope of your success curve. And so those two things, your own personal expectations and the end of your party are the reason that strivers, as they're getting into their 40s and 50s and 60s, they tend to be, they're, they're, they're more prone to anxiety, they're more prone to depression, they're more prone to suicide, they're more prone to alcohol abuse. That's why. So a lot of people have concluded that striving and happiness are incompatible, but that's wrong. You have to become skillful at the serious business of your own happiness, not just your money. And that's what I wind up talking a lot about. Right. 
that must be so disorienting when our jobs or our goals or our work or even our best attempts at like caring for other people, like all the trying doesn't add up the way that we hope that it would. So much of what you're describing reminds me of um, maybe a moment I had in my childhood where I saw my parents' careers go in two very different directions. My parents are both PhDs and one is uh a musician, an incredible singer, beautiful mezzo-soprano. And so I got to spend a lot of my childhood sort of in like a... That was your I, father, right? The mezzo-soprano? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was weirdly high. He was weird. It's like a canter tenor. It's like a thing. I don't know. Yeah. I know. He was very well known for it. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, my, my mom was always accompanied by this um, really grouchy lute player. And so I most of my... Which is not a common instrument. So I don't have a lot That's of right. like, childhood like, friends. <laughs> I've never com-com. met a cheerful lutenist, actually. I don't know what the he deal had, is. Like, yeah. flowing hair and a very, like, uh, 70s mustache. And uh, it's really, yeah. it was really, like, a morose delight. And uh, they did a lot of touring. And then there was a moment where she just, like, she couldn't quite hit the notes the way yeah. she used to. Yeah, and sure. uh, you had a moment like that, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, I was a classical musician. So that's the world I know best. And that's the world I... <clears throat> Well, that's what I dreamed about my from, from the time I was about ten years old. Yeah. So when I was ten years old, I I you know had a lot of musical talent and I was good at it and I practiced really hard. I wanted to be the world's greatest French horn player. So I that's all I did was practice and I was unmotivated in my studies and I left college after one year, a little bit less than one year. You know, dropped out, kicked out, splitting hairs, and um, <laughs> I went on the road. For my entire 20s as a professional French horn player. And my parents called it my gap decade. Oh right? my gosh, and, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I played chamber music for a long time on the road, barely making my rent, but having a pretty darn good time. And then I wound up um, going to Barcelona and playing the Barcelona Symphony for a bunch of seasons as the associate principal French horn. And when I was there, starting kind of in my early to mid-20s, I noticed that I was getting worse. It was the weirdest thing. It was almost certainly a torn muscle. And there's a lot of musculature studies that we've that people have done subsequently. I'm in my late 50s now, so it was a long time ago. And, and But now they can do surgeries. And, but and then it was just a big mystery. So I practiced more. And I went to all the best teachers, and I was in decline. And, you know, people like, I was I was a good, I was a pro. You know, it's not it's not like people are going, yeah, what's, what's wrong with him? He can't hit the notes anymore. And I, I was, it was, but it was, I'm telling you, all of happiness is progress. And I was not making progress on the contrary. I was going in the wrong direction. And it was just awful. Yeah. And you, I mean, I, it was, you seem like someone, I mean, we've just met, but I feel like I got a good read on the ampedness of your personality yeah, in which you were like, bit. oh, I'm going for it. Yeah. There will not be a fugue. I do not oh, after. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, that's right. And, and I went actually moved to Barcelona because I was chasing a girl. And uh, the music career didn't, why it didn't work out, but the, uh, this is our 31st wedding anniversary this year. And she helped me to have the courage um, to look at other things and to consider myself as more than as some of my, of my abilities, of my, my career abilities. You know, this is the key thing. I mean, a lot of people who are high performers that I talk to, you know, they are homo economicus. They, they consider themselves, uh, their identity to be what they do. And what I needed was somebody who loved me as Arthur Brooks, not that French horn player, to help me do that, to see that there was other things that I could do. And and I went on and I went to college at 30 and then went on to graduate school and did some new things. And for a long time, I couldn't talk about it, actually. For a couple of decades, I couldn't really talk about it because I felt like 
a little bit of a loser. You know, I was that guy with a PhD. It's like, yeah, I'm such a loser. It's like, you teach at Harvard. Yeah, but I'm not playing the French horn with the Barcelona. <laughs> Everybody's got their hangups is what I'm saying here. What did she, um, what did your wife say to you in particular? Do you remember that moved you into that new place? She said, you're not the sum of your French horn playing capacity. She said, you're a beloved son of God. She said that you and you're my husband. And, and that's what really matters. And you're going to be the father of our children. You know, that's what really matters. And it's true, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, everything will be forgotten except for the sum of the love in your life. What do I invest in for my happiness? And it's very clear. There's only four things. Your happiness 401k plan has four parts to it. Your faith or life philosophy, your family relationships, your friendships, and your work in service of other people. In other words, love of the divine, love of your family, love of your friends, real friends, not deal friends, and love of everybody in the way that you serve with your work. Love, 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 and more love. There's nothing in there about, you know, having, you know, five LPs as a French horn player. I mean, who cares? I do kind of like, I think I, I think I'd like that person too, though. That's, I really get that. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm, I was always a little self-conscious about, (laughs) sounds stupid, but I was always a bit self-conscious about whether as a historian that was as smart as other disciplines, because in A Beautiful Mind, Russ. Russell Crowe's character goes, historians, trivia keepers. And I was like, oh, no. Um, I think I had a very long view of what a good life can look like because um, the other career in my family home was my dad being a historian who really Uh never achieved a lot of sort of official success, but had a lot of deep vocational success because... And satisfaction probably, right? Yeah, he wrote just, uh, and especially kind of once he gave up on the shiny feeling, he started doing his best work in, um, he, he became a historian of Christmas. He used to be a Tudor historian. Same. And then I realized he kind of talked me into um, the kind of work where, which is sort of what I see in my lovely colleagues, is um, like, no one, they're, I'm not going to get a new office because everyone plans on dying in those offices. And, and I, I'm so sort of into that model of um of greater and greater vocational clarity if we move from um maybe some of our synthetic work to our yeah in into our like deeper synthetic work yeah for sure you know that's that from original to synthetic is 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 the way to think about it and original uh, original uh composition original invention original innovation into synthesizing other people's work and your own into a coherent story. It's really interesting. You know, I write now uh, a column for 500,000 readers a week or something, not based on my own experiments. On the contrary, I'm harvesting academic research and linking it together, talking about what it actually means for people's lives who are working on their own happiness. And, and, you know, that for me, I'm telling you, Kate, I've never been happier as a result of the fact that I finally am on the right curve. I'm not fighting against the past and fighting for the future. And, and, and I'm, I've been able to, I mean, I do need to work a little bit less, but I've been able to relax onto the right curve, you know, into what I'm supposed to do. And writing, speaking, and teaching, doing creative work that's highly synthetic, it's great. Mm-hmm. Explain that second curve again. So the second curve of crystallized intelligence is the intelligence that backfills what you're losing um, using the accumulation of the knowledge that you've gained. 
So you learn a lot in your 20s and 30s over the course of your inventive work, whether you're doing data science or you're an electrician or whatever you happen to be doing. You're just learning and learning and learning in new things. And that's like building up this library. That library um, actually starts to come in really, really handy as you're increasing in your 40s and 50s your ability to use the library. And, And so what that means is that you're much better at matching people up into teams. You're better at supervising people if you're willing to be generous. Um, you're much better at teaching almost every subject. And the reason is because everything reminds you of everything else. And you'll, you'll talk to an old person who's really on point and they'll be like, yeah, this reminds me of this other thing. And so they're very good at metaphor. They're very good at pattern recognition. That's crystallized intelligence. It goes through your 40s and 50s. It stays high in your 60s and 70s and 80s and even in your 90s if you keep your marbles. Wow. Arthur, I wonder if we could give the same answer or response to people who don't get to feel that peak feeling. Cause a lot of people who I meet either have these like really emotionally expensive jobs where they, they don't really feel there's not always a feeling of getting somewhere, or there's a lot of people who deferred dreams in order to care for other people, parents, kids, et cetera, but they still need to make that switch into a different kind of of measuring the second half of their life. Yeah. yeah. So you find that women my age and older that that come from pretty conventional family backgrounds where they raised kids all the way through their fluid intelligence curve, they tend to flourish on their crystallized intelligence curve because they're not fighting against, you know, moving away from that. And what they find is when their kids grow up and move away, a lot of them, they just bloom because they, they just walk right onto that second curve and have a great old time. Whereas their husbands who are often, you know, still fighting against, you know, their, their, their skills changing are suffering a lot. Their husbands get more alienated. They have relatively few friends. They get very anxious and depressed and they're wondering why their wives are so happy. Well, that's why is <clears throat> because their wives did the transition a lot better. This is also can be the case for a lot of caregivers. It's very, very difficult to develop and enjoy your fluid intelligence curve when you're constantly taking care of other people that need you. And I mean, you can get better at it. You can get more acute at it. You can come up with new and better ways to do it. But what you're really, really good at, especially in later in life, is thinking of yourself as a teacher, a sharer. You're thinking of somebody who's a server, which is ideally suited to crystallized intelligence. So if you reframe what you're doing in a serving profession as teaching other people to be happier, to be better, to be, to be something higher than they were, what am I doing to lift other people up with my knowledge and in my skills, with the love that I have in my life? You'll be ideally using your crystallized intelligence. So everybody can be a professor in their own way. Oh, I like and, how you uh, say that, because that's all I've <laughs> really ever. I used to, I mean, before before my diagnosis, I, I think I absolutely would have uh, fallen into the definition of the uh, intense striver that you're describing. I just was like, I mean, I wasn't even trying to imagine life as a ladder, but I was climbing until, I mean, I was climbing until all the rungs just weren't available anymore. But I, uh, I had the feeling of accumulation and I had really sort of, I think, without knowing it, adopted a kind of bucket list attitude toward my life. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about like bucket list mentalities and maybe like reverse bucket lists that we might adopt instead. (laughs) 
So that's the satisfaction problem that you're talking about. And a lot of people who are hardworking and relatively ambitious and high performing or just distracting themselves from life, you know, and, and there's a lot of ways you can distract yourself. You can you drink a lot of alcohol, you can take some drugs, you can gamble, you can look at pornography. There's a lot of ways that you can distract yourself from the hard business of life. And the, what, what you're doing is you're basically, you're becoming a dopamine fiend because behind all of those behaviors and activities and substances that I just mentioned is this super charging dopamine machine. And another way to do that is by by being really ambitious and having a bucket list of things you're trying to accomplishments you're trying to walk through. To, you know, workaholism, success addiction, self-objectification, be successful, hit the lever, get the cookie, and the dopamine of the next thing, the next thing, more, more, more will distract you from the I mean, life is life is tough, man. How can we actually learn to be comfortable being at home with ourselves. That's the skill that we actually have to cultivate. You're never going to find it by running on the treadmill and running on the treadmill. You're never going to find some other place where you can stay because the minute you stop, the treadmill is going to carry you right back into Kate. And it's like, there you are. There you are. It's like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson one time talked about, he says, you know, I always imagine that that in, in Rome or Naples, that that's that you know it's like yeah, I was talking about Rome and Naples that everything will be okay and I pack my trunk and and, and I go to Naples and I open up my trunk and there I am exactly. <laughs> yes. that's, right. that's the key thing to keep in mind and that's the big problem that's the satisfaction problem so a bucket list is basically saying when I achieve these things and then I'm going to be okay when I achieve when I experience these things then I'm going to be happy no you're not you need to detach yourself from, from, from those particular cravings and desires, from those delusions. You need to learn actually what it means to be with yourself right now, um, today, and tomorrow, and every day. And that's a really hard thing to do for some, for me. That's a really hard thing for me. When I was researching the history of bucket lists, I, I had started... Um following all kinds of like bucket list social media accounts to see this sort of like endless hunger that these created. And then of course, during the pandemic, it's like how many painted staircases can Angela do? You know, and the answer is when the world constrains us, we don't so much love learning the lesson you're describing. Then we're just, uh, yeah, then you, this like, it's like, you got no choice. Yeah. You're stuck. Welcome. You're stuck, Welcome. stuck, stuck. And some people, by the way, 7% of Americans were really happy during the lockdowns. Those are like the cats. <laughs> the cats are like, this is awesome. This is oh great, right? You know, yeah. it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep on the windowsill all day long. I'm not going to move from the windowsill. Don't bother <laughs> me. A golden retriever, then. It's a problem. Good luck, us. I know, it's a problem. If you're a neurotic golden retriever, all the, all the worst. One of the things we talk about a lot is um, trying to move past American mythologies of being self-made, the sort of exhausting, endless individualism and bootstrapping that we just can't sustain when life comes apart. And uh, you have you have some strong hopes for when we unravel that. You're imagining maybe we could learn to need each other and be a little more useful to one another. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, The problem for a lot of people who've been excessively individualistic over the course of their lives is that they have desiccated relationships. And this is one of the things that I find for the unhappiest people my age and older. Um, Very, very ambitious people, the high achievers, the strivers. 
they they have substituted their own success for love and it's been a really bad bargain it's it's really important though that that what you find is 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 coming to understand that anybody can develop better love and better relationships and better networks of healthy relationships at any point in life but you you got to treat it like any other serious task you can't just hope you know it's like oh, i have all these friends and you know, you got to do, you got to take it seriously. Oh, you, you know, have a whole and, chapter on like, please make a friend. Here's how. Yeah, totally. It's like, and it sounds so pathetic because people who have tons of close friends are like, you need a chapter on how to make friends. Oh, no. Well, yeah. It's so totally. real. We Completely. had a lovely uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy is such a Yeah, our surgeon general. He's phenomenal. Think he's yeah. a total delight. And the soulfulness with which he talks about loneliness, I mean, it does make it so real that for a lot of a, a lot of people like in and certain especially kind of like demographic pockets like men period a lot of guys they're really really incompetent at it women tend to get better at friendship as they get older um men get worse as they get older so the 60 year old men who've had a lot of material success in 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 their work um they tend to be very very lonely people not always but boy do i ever see it a lot and do i ever see it in the data as well because they're incompetent. They don't know how to, the last time they had really close friends was like college. Yeah. And then and in their 20s, they got married and then they wouldn't hang out after work because that would be cheating your family. And so the result is that their only friend is their wife. And their wife is like, I need more friends than this. <laughs> <laughs> Walking away from your book, I felt like I'd sort of had a pep talk for decline. I mean, I, I think I was especially nervous about decline because I've already, I've had a lot of setbacks. Like I, I mean, cancer like took me out for a lot of my thirties. And then I think I wasn't really ready to hear people complain about like fading vision or like, I wasn't ready to accept small decline because I, I, I think it just, it made me worried. Like, I've, like, thank you so much. I've already lost so much, but I, uh, there's yeah. a, there's a deep hopefulness in, uh, in learning to accept ourselves as we change. Yeah. The other thing you did too, is you talked me into the endlessness of my career as a historian and for that and for so yeah. many things. You're going to be 95 and still working. That's the bad news. Sorry. <laughs> I can't wait. Arthur, thank you so much for doing this with me today. What a treat. Thank you, Kate. Thank you for what you're doing and for the gift that you're bringing to so many people around the world. Hey, if you thought that things were going to add up differently, you know, Retirement was supposed to feel like a reward, but it doesn't exactly. Or maybe you missed too many big moments with your kids or friends and it felt like it was going to be worth it, but now everyone lives so far away. You spent so much time training for a career, but circumstances or other needs or health kept you from reaching the finish line. Maybe you thought you'd be married by now or had that baby you prayed for or that community you could rely on. Or maybe you just thought you'd get more time. Maybe this place, this strangely unfulfilled, unchecked off place, can be ripe for a blessing too. So, blessed are you who say, this did not add up. I had hoped these choices I made, the life I tried so hard to pick, 
would add up to something meaningful. But now I'm left without many choices at all. Left wondering, did I pick right? Did I waste my days? What should I have done differently? This limited life is what it means to be human in our failures and bad, bad math, in our best intentions and hardest work, in our waylaid hopes and far off dreams, in the love that is never ever too late to give or receive. Maybe success and happiness can mean something different now on the other side of a life changed where minutes become moments and there will never be enough sunsets or handholds or jokes shared, but there is never ever too much love. Bless you, my dears. Hi, this is Barbara calling from Fairfax County, Virginia after a pandemic and losing my mom and taking care of her. Happiness looks like getting an email saying, what does happiness look like for you now? And you can reflect on that. And I can say happiness for me right now in September 2022 is getting everything that I need to get done during the day and then being able to watch an episode of Queer Eye at night. Um, happiness also looks like being able to go for a run and be thankful for my health. And happiness looks like being able to cut herbs from my community herb garden that I planted this year that I wanted to do for years, but I couldn't because I was taking care, helping take care of my mom. And I did it this year, and my herbs are gorgeous and beautiful. And I've donated 12 pounds of them already to the community food bank. So that's everything um, that I can think of for right now. Hi, my name is Christina, and I'm 34 years old and live in Portland, Oregon. And my definition of success has changed radically. At 22, that looked like having a Roth IRA, a 401k, um, starting to save for a down payment on a condo, dating, how many networking groups I was a part of, the list goes on forever. Um, now at 34, after a decade of chronic illness, success for me looks like changing into something other than my pajamas, brushing my teeth in the morning, washing my face, eating three meals a day, staying hydrated, and trying to hold on to hope. Hi, my name is Carol, and I'm from Atlanta. And I would say that success for me um, these days um, has changed because I'm in a season of uh, taking care of my mom, who is 96. And so success used to be doing all the things and checking all the boxes and completing tasks and running around and um, whether it was at work or at home. And now success looks like sitting quietly with her for an hour or two um, and just being present and being still. And that's always been a challenge for me. So when I am able to really be in the moment with her, um, it's incredibly fulfilling. And I walk out of there 
feeling like it was a good day. A really special thank you to our generous partners who make this work possible. Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School, and Leadership Education. And to my wonderful team, Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Gwen Higginbotham, Brenda Thompson, Keith Weston, Jeb, and Sammy. Thank you. And I'd really love to hear what you loved about this episode. Uh, Would you do me a favor and leave a review on Apple Podcasts? It really, really means a lot to us when we get to hear what we do well and also even what we can do better. You can also leave us a voicemail and who knows, we might even be able to use your voice on the air. Call us at 919-322-8731. All right, I'll talk to you next week. But in the meantime, come find me online at Kate C. Bowler. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>